Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Desilu's music director, Wilbur Hatch, and his five hired composers began recording Star Trek The Original Series Season 1 in August of 1966. This is The Soundtrack Show. Get to work. Welcome back to the Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and at long last, we are in full production on the musical scores of the first season of Star Trek The Original Series. Our first two hired episodic composers, Alexander Sandy Courage, who also wrote the main theme of Star Trek, thus giving him a music credit in all 79 episodes of the entire series, and composer Fred Steiner, who has the distinction of having written the most music for the series overall, began composing music in parallel on their assigned episodes, beginning in August of 1966. And looking at the dates, the schedule was typical of TV production. A whirlwind of fast-paced writing and recording, oftentimes scoring an episode just a few weeks before it hit the airwaves. The first episode to air, for example, is The Man Trap, which debuted on September 8, 1966. But the episode was scored by Sandy Courage on August 19th, just a few weeks before. And that's just speaking for the music production. By all accounts, the first season of Star Trek was an incredibly ambitious, huge undertaking, involving long hours by the whole cast and crew, working for months in order to make their air dates. The music scheduling is but a mere sample of how quickly these professional artists all had to work and is somewhat typical for TV production in general. I mentioned the Man Trap score. We'll talk about this and a handful of other scores in this episode of The Soundtrack Show, but first, I want to mention a bit of a puzzle that kept Star Trek fans from really understanding the music of Trek for years, and that is this. What music was written, for what episode, and when? On the surface, you'd think that it's just a matter of calculating what episodes came out first. But it's a bit more complicated than that. Because there's a difference between when an episode was produced or shot versus when it was scored with music versus when it was aired. For example, as we know, the second pilot for Star Trek, where no man has gone before, was produced the year before this in 1965. But that episode is the third to air. The first pilot, The Cage, produced in 1964, with Courage's score recorded in January of 65, airs as the 11th and 12th episodes of Star Trek, as a two-part episode called The Menagerie. Meanwhile, the first episode of season one to be produced, after it was picked up for a full season, was actually The Carbamite Maneuver. Great episode, by the way. It's here where you can see the show finding its legs, really becoming Star Trek. Though its score was actually only a partial score, written by Fred Steiner, after he'd already written a couple of other episodes. And though it was the first produced, The Carbamite Maneuver is the 10th episode to air. So yeah, it's a bit of a head-scratcher. And before I go any further, I want to acknowledge the incredible work by author and producer Jeff Bond, who wrote a book in 1999 called The Music of Star Trek. Bond is the one who unraveled this puzzle with his meticulous research. And though the book is currently out of print, his work is featured in the La La Land Records box set of Star Trek, the original series, and its re-releases. If you're a fan of this music, these sets are a treasure, and I highly recommend picking them up. But back to the production of Season 1's music. Alexander Sandy Courage started writing music in August of 1966, as did Fred Steiner. The first episode to be recorded is also, coincidentally, the first to air. The Man Trap, an episode featuring a salt-sucking monster that has the power to cast illusions to members of the crew, making it appear either as beautiful women, like to Bones and other crew members, 
or a beautiful man in one case, as presented to Uhura, and the creature actually needs salt to survive and is pulling it right out of its human victims, killing them instantly. Courage recorded this episode on August 19th of 1966, as previously mentioned, and true to Courage's scores, it's largely a wind ensemble again, though it does feature one cello, one bass, and one electric violin. In fact, the version of the main title that audiences first heard in this episode is carried on the electric violin. Other instruments of note, forgive the pun, are the organ and a saxophone in the large woodwind section. Right away, we hear that Courage's score is typically dark and atmospheric, just like it was in his second pilot, where no man has gone before. He even opens the episode with underscore that features a theme introduced in that episode, the five-note ascension of worry in F minor. In fact, F minor is kind of introduced via this dissonance made up of these notes here. And the theme, starting on F, goes like this. opening captain's log, and then once we're on the planet's surface, this figure moves to pizzicato, or plucked low cello and bass, underneath Courage's signature brass bend, also introduced in the second pilot. hear this five-note theme in this episode over and over again, as it is one of two main melodies featured throughout all of the Man Trap, even when going to commercial break. Now, on to our main character of this episode, Nancy Crater. When Nancy, Bones' love interest, greets him, we are introduced to the second major theme of the episode. Nancy's theme is a haunting, meandering melody, played first on electric violin. Nancy is, of course, the monster of the week in disguise, and we learn that something isn't right almost immediately. She appears to Bones just as he remembers her, not a day over 25. But when she meets Captain Kirk, she appears older to him, an age-appropriate Nancy that Kirk would be expecting to see, based on Bones' description. She now has gray hair and appears a bit older. Courage does something very interesting here. He changes the orchestration every time Nancy changes appearance. Now, as Kirk looks at her, we hear Nancy's theme again, only this time, on woodwinds instead of electric violin. Then, when a young crewman named Darnell walks into the scene, he sees her as a completely different woman, one that looks him up and down flirtatiously. The crewman can't help but disclose that he met someone that looked just like her in a different planet's pleasure palace, thus insulting Nancy in the eyes of Bones. But when this different woman appears to this young crewman, Courage gives us Nancy's theme now on a sultry saxophone, using it to convey the passions of this young crewman and the alluring nature of Nancy's shape-shifting power, as crewman Darnell follows the woman he thinks he sees to his ultimate death. (laughs) 
At this point, we as the audience are the only ones in on Nancy's appearance changes, thanks in huge part to Courage's score. As the episode progresses, Nancy kills another crewman named Green and assumes his appearance to fool the crew of the Enterprise. When she transforms into Green, we're treated to Nancy's theme on organ now as she fools Bones and Kirk. This disguise ultimately gets Nancy aboard the Enterprise. She's beamed up to the ship as Crewman Green, and we hear a lot more organ as the shape-shifting threat skulks through the corridors of the ship. By the way, when everyone beams back up, you can hear that Jack Cookerly's magic box organ sound, first used in the cage as the ambience for the alien planet Talos IV, and it's now been repurposed as the musical sound of the transporter. Transporter room. Kirk speaking. Three to beam up. As I mentioned before, Nancy's theme changes instrumentation every time the shapeshifter changes appearance. When Bones sees Nancy, it's an electric violin. Early on in the episode when Nancy's husband, Professor Crater, is speaking about Nancy to Kirk and Bones, we hear the theme on woodwinds, as we do when the creature appears to Uhura. Later, when Nancy reappears to Bones on the ship, the electric violin comes back. When she then disguises herself as Bones, we now hear it again on solo cello. is cleverly using changes in orchestration to mimic the creature's changes in appearance. When the crew finally realizes that Nancy is not Nancy at all, but a creature that had long since killed Nancy and is now killing the rest of the crew for salt, the confrontation with the creature plays out in a horror action cue with Nancy's theme, or should I say the creature's theme, on electric violin at first. Is that Nancy, Doctor? But when the grotesque creature finally reveals itself, and this monster and this scene is why NBC aired this episode first, by the way, we finally hear the theme, Nancy's theme, in its monstrous, true form, in bold, dissonant brass, as the creature attacks the captain. Once the creature, the last of its kind, is killed, by poor Bones, of course, with a phaser, and everything is returned to normal, it is only then that Courage gives us the martial call to action from his main theme, right at the very end of Season 1's first aired episode. Now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. In just one session on Friday, August 19th, 1966, Sandy Courage recorded the music for the entire episode of The Man Trap. Ten days later, on Monday, August 29th, 1966, Fred Steiner recorded his first episode of Star Trek called Charlie X. Charlie X, coincidentally, is the second episode to air and be seen by the public, making its debut on September 16, 1966. Charlie X is about a teenage boy who is transferred to the Enterprise, much to the relief of the crew that dropped him off. For you see, Charlie has special powers, 
and was seemingly raised all alone for 14 of his 17 years, the last survivor of a wreck on the planet Thasis. He wants to be liked, but the crew quickly grows weary of him because he has no social skills. But Charlie does have mental superpowers and shows incredible skill with telepathy and matter transmutation. And he is a very, very sensitive young man. He does not like to be disciplined. He is awkward and highly dangerous. Fred Steiner recorded the music for Charlie X with an ensemble roughly the same size as Courage's orchestra on the Man Trap. But the lineup is noticeably different. Gone are all the trumpets, trombones, and the tuba that were on the cage. And the only brass Steiner uses is the French horn section. Instead, he's added low strings. Still no first or second violins at all in Star Trek, a major orchestral omission by any film orchestra standard. But now we have four violas, which is kind of the mid-range string, low mids, four cellos, and one bass. Along with the usual complement of woodwinds, an organist-slash-pianist, three percussionists, and a harp. This alone will make Steiner's score stand apart from Courage's. But Steiner opens up his first episode as if he'd been comparing notes with Sandy Courage, as we are immediately treated to that same dark tone and same thematic material that Courage had used. We hear that five-note ascending worrisome Enterprise theme, as well as Steiner's take on the bending brass chords. But from there, Steiner's own genius shines through, and his tremendous musical Star Trek contributions begin their introductions. First up, the low strings bending in pitch as a moment of tension or horror, followed by what author Jeff Bond calls zap chords, or chords played by piano and winds, every time Charlie uses his mental powers. These chords are not only used throughout the episode, but they become a commonly used musical stinger throughout the entire first season. Then, after the main title, Steiner introduces us to a new theme, a brassy, nautical, and heroic theme played under a high-pitched piano arpeggio. Library of Congress article, Fred Steiner said the following about this theme, quote, It is played by French horns, an orchestral color which lends the theme a noble, almost Wagnerian quality, somewhat tinged with melancholy. It expressed what I saw as the mythic hero dual personality of the Enterprise leader, a strong, resourceful, dependable man who also has a softer, more vulnerable side and who is, at times, a solitary, lonely figure, end quote. Perhaps this theme helps us understand why producer Robert Justman said the following about Fred Steiner, quote, It seemed my first choice always, unless there was a particular reason, was Fred. He caught the inner being of Star Trek, end quote. Still, this theme, which has a figure that is moving down in fourth intervals, like this, this theme is still rooted in the work of Sandy Courage, because this theme, as it turns out upon inspection, is really just an inverted treatment of Courage's opening fanfare. Instead of going down in fourths, like this, you go up in fourths, in reverse, and you clearly have the opening three notes of Courage's famous Star Trek theme, as in... date 
We have taken aboard an unusual passenger for transport to colony Alpha 5, Charles Evans, the sole survivor of a transport crash 14 years ago. The child, alone from age three, has not only survived, but has grown to intelligent, healthy adolescence. After Charlie X was recorded at the beginning of the week, Sandy Courage came back to record his score for an episode called The Naked Time, two days later, on Wednesday, August 31st, 1966. This episode, which he orchestrated himself, would be Courage's final episode for season one, before moving back to Fox to work on Dr. Doolittle. And while this is pure speculation on my part, it makes sense, as I said earlier, that Fred Steiner and Sandy Courage most likely were exchanging notes and ideas, perhaps through Robert Justman, their producer, or perhaps through Wilbur Hatch, the head of music at Desilu. I say this not just because Steiner used Courage's themes, but also because Courage's last episode, The Naked Time, features a sound and an orchestral lineup that more closely resembles Steiner's. Gone are Courage's experiments with organ, electric violin, or spooky magic box organs and electronic guitars, and suddenly, Courage adds more low strings to the lineup. The Naked Time has a slightly reduced brass section and has now added four cellos. While still kind of a wind ensemble, this does represent a shift for Courage, after already having scored three episodes, two of which were pilots, with virtually no string sections at all. And The Naked Time is perhaps Courage's most memorable episodic score, because the plot allows the music to go in a few adventurous directions. The Naked Time is all about a virus that finds its way on board the Enterprise. The effect of this virus is that it lowers the inhibitions and judgment of the infected in ways similar to alcohol, without the side effects. So everyone shows their truer, more extreme, and reckless versions of themselves. The script pushes our characters to their extremes, giving the score some marvelous chances at broad, musical interpretations of these characters and situations. It's one of the reasons why I'm of the opinion that The Naked Time is Sandy Courage's finest score in Season 1, if for nothing else, because this episode really seems to have it all musically. First, there is the virus itself. Besides the musical sound effect of the shaker for the virus, Courage actually gives the virus its own theme that's so clear that you can practically track its movement as easily as you can track the shark in Jaws. Courage uses woodwinds to create a mischievous theme, perfectly capturing the insidious nature of the virus with just a hint of absurdity. time the virus spreads, the theme plays without fail. The lab status report, doctor. Oh, thank you, Christy. Courage also draws on his previous themes beautifully in this episode. The five-note ascending theme for the ship feels like it's heard countless times. And just like Courage did way back in his pilots, he shows his storytelling skills by even weaving two of his themes together, the virus theme and the ship theme, while Lieutenant Tormolin and Captain Kirk talk about their dangerous mission in space. This is the beginning of Tormolin's true, tragic nature coming to the surface, as his inner sorrow is made so unnaturally intense by the virus that it eventually takes his life. A couple of other Courage themes are used throughout the episode. Right at the top, Courage helps to establish what will become a familiar pattern in the original series returning from a commercial break for a new act in the episode set to the famous Star Trek Marshall fanfare. 
And when things on the ship get really dire, Courage brings back his four-note alternate Trek theme, making another appearance in season one. It even serves as action music at the end of the episode, when they attempt to break free of the collapsing planet of Psy 2000. score for this episode really shines is not only in the balance and use of themes by Courage, but in the extremities of our characters and their situations. Let's listen to a few. After the tragic death of Lieutenant Tormolin, the show presents us with the extreme opposite of the virus when it infects others. It turns Lieutenant Sulu into a swashbuckling rogue. As Sulu runs around shirtless through the Enterprise with his fencing sword, Courage goes full corn gold classic Hollywood, giving us Errol Flynn slash Robin Hood slash Captain Blood in the French horns, moving through major sixth harmonies in triplets like an old-fashioned swashbuckling film score. Eventually, he gets the full brass treatment here. Even Spock makes the following literary reference to the Three Musketeers when he subdues Sulu with the series' first debut of the famous Vulcan neck pinch, and says, I'd like you to teach me that sometime. Take D'Artagnan here to sickbed. Scotty, we need power. Lieutenant Riley, who sits at the helm with Sulu, has his own uninhibited breakdown as he fancies himself Irish royalty. Right when he becomes insubordinate with Spock, Courage treats Riley with a subdued Irish tune as he marches himself off to sickbay. One interesting thing to note about The Naked Time is that it contains a scene in which we see a virus-infected Spock, and he has a complete emotional breakdown that runs completely contrary to his normal character. This scene, done in one continuous camera move around Leonard Nimoy as he cries into the surface of the conference room's table, is presented to us completely without music. Sometimes, composing music for a show or movie is as much about where you don't put music as where you do. Toward the end of The Naked Time, as Kirk tries to get over his lack of judgment caused by the virus infection, the captain manages to make his way up to the bridge via the lift. As he's riding in the lift, we see him look off camera in shock. The camera whip pans to the right and we see, sprawled in painted writing, Sinner Repent. As this happens, we hear the music do the following. Wait, 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 wait. That's that's not Courage's music. That's I mean, this is Courage's episode, but but is that music from The Naked Time? It's a music edit of this little stinger. Followed by a condensed version of this Wagnerian little figure here. But this is Courage's episode, I thought. Hmm. It appears that even this early on in Star Trek's music production, the tracking of cues from other episodes had already begun. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. 
We return now to the soundtrack show. There are countless unsung heroes that have toiled away on the movies, TV shows, games, and musicals that we've loved over the years. Recently on the soundtrack show, we had our very first discussion about orchestrators and the role that they play in movies and TV. Well, with Star Trek, it's time we turn our attention towards the editing staff behind the show's music, as they were the ones who lived with every episode both before and long after a composer was brought on for a specific Season 1 episode. We've come to know the two individuals who hired our composers, Wilbur Hatch, Desi Lu's longtime music director, and at the time, associate producer Robert Justman, who dedicated himself to the music of the show. He said in 1982, quote, Even though I was the associate producer, I set the composers and I spotted the music. And I did the dubs. A dub, by the way, is a final mix or presentation of the show with all the elements present, dialogue, music, and sound effects. He goes on to say, quote, there was a void and I jumped in and did it, end quote. So Justman acted as a go-between for Roddenberry and all the music efforts on the show. And he couldn't have done so without music editors. So what is a music editor exactly? on what the job title implies. Well, for starters, music editors are far more than just technicians. While understanding technology is, of course, part of the job, as it has been for hundreds of years, yes, the invention of the violin or the latest breakthrough in valve keys on a brass instrument is also technology. Editors are creatives. Technology is just a tool. Music editors must also be musicians and dramatists themselves. They have to be in order to do the job effectively at all. Their responsibilities, beyond just laying in music in sync and getting it to the mix stage, is to work in lockstep with the composer, almost as an assistant composer themselves, taking rigorous notes in spotting sessions, oftentimes helping to assemble temp tracks for rough cuts, addressing notes from the director or showrunners, and so, so much more. Before a composer receives an assignment, and long after they turn it in, the music editor champions the score from its conception all the way to final mix of any given episode. And with Star Trek, most episodes were musically spotted and assembled not by composers who came and went, but by editors who lived with more episodes in a season than any composer who ever worked on the show. Even just by the numbers, only 13 of 29 Season 1 episodes had original music composed for them. The remainder were spotted, conceived, and assembled for the final mix by music editors. While no music editor is credited on the cage that I could find, the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before, was edited by Jack Hunsaker. But the music editor who really kicked off Season 1 and helped shape it into what it became was Robert H. Raff. Robert Raff was music editor during the beginning of Season 1, including practically every episode that had original music written for it. It was his job to define which episodes needed full scores to begin with, and which episodes, as Justman's budget started being spent, needed only partial scores, and which ones could be fully tracked with music recorded for previous episodes. Music editor Robert Raff also started to collect all of these cues into a categorized music library and helped define a list of needed library cues. A library cue is a cue recorded not in sync to any particular episode, but they're little pieces of music meant for more general use that could apply to various situations in future episodes. We'll discuss how this library functioned and we'll hear it in action a bit later. For now, Let's go back to the task at hand for music editor Robert Raff as we examine the final mix of Courage's episode, The Naked Time, and from what I can tell, the original series' first tracked music edit. That is, music edited from a different episode for dramatic purpose. Now, I wasn't there, obviously, but having worked on my share of movies and TV shows, I can imagine a scenario that may have gone down something like this. Alexander Courage turns in his score for The Naked Time, a fantastic, character-driven score with a lot of different elements working throughout. But when we get to the final mix stage, a dramatic note comes up from the director or showrunner. 
Courage didn't hit that moment where the camera whips over to the painted Sinner's Repent sign in the elevator. There was no score recorded to support that musical hit that really works all that well. It could be that this moment was added in the edit after Courage scored the episode, meaning that there was a picture change. Or it could have been a change requested by Roddenberry while reviewing the final mix or dub. Regardless of the reason, the score has been recorded, and now it falls to Robert Raff, the music editor, to musically fix this problem after the fact without spending any more money, and he's got to do it quickly. While this would have been a commonplace task for Raff, this specialized skill, magically finding music that would work based on limited available material and essentially fabricating a new cue that would musically fit here without jarring us, the audience, is why producer Howard Kazanjian, producer of Return of the Jedi and Raiders of the Lost Ark, called music editors magicians. So, Raff's magic trick in this case was to go into Steiner's first score, Charlie X, and find two different elements— a stinger or zap moment, which he can use for this moment in the naked time. Charlie X was filled with those. And then a moment of suspense that would lead into Courage's next timed cue that he had composed for the following scene. So we have to get in and out of this edit in a way that is musically pleasing. So, in a cue called Zap the Spaceship that Steiner wrote for the dramatic final scenes of Charlie X, Raff searched and, wait for it, found, aha, a music cue that would work. This should work. Okay, now for some suspense music. Let's go back a bit. Ah, yes, this cue would work nicely. Oh, but wait, it's too long. Uh, let me just do a quick razor blade crossfade cut on the suspended low note to shorten it in length. Fade it out on the console, and now we're back into Courage's next cue. Let's take a listen. Courage finishes the dramatic scene with Kirk as he starts his ride in the lift. Fade out to clear for a music edit. There it is. Now the shortened suspense. And it clears. And Courage's cue comes in, feeling like it's just a key change down a full step. But it works! Besides, we as the audience are too busy looking at our actors and too engrossed in the story to even notice the little musical magic trick that we all just heard. It sounds like this is how it was always intended to go. Bridge. This early music edit is just one of countless music edits that Robert H. Raff and in the back half of the season editor Jim Henriksen would have to make in order to assemble full episodic music scores for Star Trek The Original Series Season 1. But still, that was an impressive music edit because keep in mind, only a few scores had been recorded at this point. But you know, speaking of impressive music edits, I want to share another one. One that, in my opinion, is an incredibly important music edit that is critical to the plot and structure of an entire episode. And as impressive as the Naked Time edit is, this one is truly spectacular. I mentioned that the Naked Time is the first tracked music edit that I've found in Star Trek, meaning it's the first instance of music edited into an episode which it wasn't even written for. It is not, however, the season's first music edit. That honor goes to The Man Trap, which we discussed previously. And Robert Raff absolutely saved the day by editing a mere snippet of Courage's music over the top of his own score. And without this edit, the monster of the week may not have worked at all. Here's the scenario. Alexander Courage cleverly orchestrated Nancy's theme to change instruments 
every time her appearance changed, as we discussed. What he did not do in his original cues, however, is place a musical stinger on the moment of transformation. But in the final episode, we hear a musical stinger that features a mischievous clarinet line every time Nancy changes appearance. Robert Raff found a snippet of music in a later cue within the Mantrap score. Keep in mind that only three scores existed at this point, the Mantrap plus our two pilots, and he expertly placed it in the score over and over again throughout the episode. Let's take a listen and hear just how effective this is and how important the addition of this stinger is to our perception, the audience's perception, of what's going on with Nancy's appearance. As you'll soon hear, without this stinger, the dramatic situation, especially at the beginning, is not all that clear. First, let's take a listen to Courage's original cue for the scene in which we first meet Nancy. Here's the Nancy theme on electric violin. And then Kirk is introduced to her. And we hear the theme again on woodwinds. Wait, did she look different? Hmm. Later, when crewman Darnell sees her and she becomes a completely different woman. Wait, what just happened? The only thing that clues us into the supernatural is the instrumental change to saxophone. It's maybe a bit underwhelming. Now, again, I wasn't there, so I don't know why Courage didn't hit these moments with a musical stinger. The music cue for this scene, as released by La La Land Records, which you just heard, doesn't contain a stinger at all when Nancy changes appearance. But that little musical fragment can be found in the middle of a cue called Top Security. And it sounds like this. Perhaps at the time, Courage and crew thought that there would be a sound effect there on her transformations. Perhaps not, I don't know. But what we can surmise is that the creative note came down to hit these transformations musically. What music editor Robert Raff did then was go on the hunt for something that would work, anything. And he found a moment later in the score that would musically work as a stinger, and he proceeded to edit it into place every time Nancy changed appearance. And I mean every time. All the way until the very end of the episode. Let's hear that scene again, with stingers edited into place. Leonard. Nancy. Hello. It's good to see you. Let me look at you. You have an age today. Oh, this is Captain Jim Kirk of the Enterprise. Mrs. Crater, I've heard a great deal about you. Oh, good, I hope. And Crewman Darnell. How do you do, man? Something wrong, Darnell? Oh, excuse me, sir, but... Ma'am, if I didn't know better, I would swear that you were somebody I left behind on Wrigley's Pleasure Planet. It's funny, you're exactly like a girl that... A little less mouth, Darnell. I'm sorry, sir. I, I didn't mean to... Uh... I mean, I know it's impossible, of course. Why don't you step outside, Darnell? Yes, sir. So much cleaner. And we can easily see and hear just how vital music editors are during post-production and what an incredible impact they can have on the story. And their impact doesn't end there. Since they are experts on what music the show has and what music it doesn't have, they become vital in strategizing with producers on what music is still needed when looking at the rest of the season. Editors Raff and Henriksen have to help producer Robert Justman and music director Wilbur Hatch figure out what episodes to spend the money on musically. Which leads us back to our composers. After Courage turned in his recorded score for The Naked Time, he left the show in September of 66 to go back to Fox to work with Lionel Newman on Dr. Doolittle, as we mentioned. One week after Courage wrapped his Naked Time score, 
Steiner went back to the scoring stage to record a small ensemble for an episode called Mud's Women. Again, with no first or second violins, but plenty of violas and cellos. Also noticeably absent are trumpets. The only brass is four French horns. As this episode is not one about action, but more about comedy and drama, as Mud transports three women, like sirens to the crew as they are enhanced with an alien drug called the Venus drug, and the score is filled with an exotic otherness, working to place our characters under the drug spell. This is interesting here because it's an example of a score for an episode that's highly specialized. This is not a score or a plot that could have easily been tracked with music from other episodes or from simple library cues. This episode was dramatically specific enough to demand its own musical treatment. That's something that the editors would have spotted and realized. But therein lies the problem. The more specific the music, the less likely it is to be all that useful for tracking into later episodes. It's a bit of a creative puzzle, as you can see. The more generic the episodic music is, the more valuable it is because it can be used in various ways. The downside of that, of course, is that it's also not always very interesting. And having sort of generic, non-contextual music is a quick way to make your episodes fall flat. So. What Hatch, Justman, and Raff have on their hands is a bit of a creative balancing act. And with two pilot scores and four full episodic scores now complete, the music budget allocated for a full season is quickly dwindling. Their solution, then, was for Steiner's next assignment to be three partial scores. Rather than have him write a full 30 minutes for another episode, they have him write about seven minutes or so for the Carbamite Maneuver, five and a half minutes for Balance of Terror, and about eight minutes for What Are Little Girls Made Of. And on Tuesday, September 20th, 1966, Steiner recorded music for all three of these episodes in just one recording session. Steiner's first partial score, The Carbamite Maneuver, was also the very first episode that the cast shot for season one, as I mentioned. And you can see small differences as the show is finding its way, like Uhura's green costume and Spock calling out maritime orders like he did in the second pilot. But though this is the crew's first episode, it's Steiner's third for Star Trek. In it, he wrote two very memorable pieces of music, both of which would be tracked over and over again into future season one episodes. The first cue is for a fast-moving cube buoy that appears in front of the Enterprise and refuses to back away. Steiner drives the tension with woodwinds and xylophone with menacing chords in the brass. Music that definitely helps sell the visual effect on screen and lets us know that this cube is potentially a threat. The second music cue is a very memorable and menacing melody for the flagship Fasarius. This sets up a wonderful twist at the end, when the alien, who appears as a ghastly frowning Wizard of Oz type figure at first, ends up being a friendly, child-sized humanoid played by a very young Clint Howard. <laughs> The memorable and menacing melody, points for alliteration, featured in the Carbamite Maneuver score isn't the last or even most famous dark melody that Steiner would write. For his next episode, Balance of Terror, Steiner delivers one of the most famous bad guy melodies to originate from season one. 
Balance of Terror is a science fiction reimagining of a submarine drama called The Enemy Below from 1957, starring Robert Mitchum. In this episode, the Enterprise plays a game of cat and mouse with a Romulan vessel, and in doing so, avoids an intergalactic war between the Federation and the Romulans. We're introduced to the Romulans with Steiner's memorable theme, and it goes like this. It kind of walks through these flatted or diminished intervals. Bum, 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 bum. Starting on the root. And then it goes up a half step to the flatted second. Then a classic minor third. The interval that really defines a minor mode. And then the tritone, the devil's tone. Always going back to the one. This is the stuff of Black Sabbath or power metal. You could play this with distorted guitars, bass, and drums at OzFest. Steiner's melodies in general, even this early on, are proving to be straightforward, filled with memorable hooks and highly reusable. For example, this theme, though written for the Romulans, would be tracked by music editor Jim Henriksen into an episode called Errand of Mercy, where we first meet the Klingons, who go on to become the main adversaries of the Enterprise crew for decades to come. The Klingons are scored with this melody, originally penned for Balance of Terror, over and over again. The last episode that Steiner wrote a partial score for, and also recorded that same day, is an episode about androids called What Are Little Girls Made Of? The most memorable cue that Steiner wrote for this episode, which would, again, be tracked regularly into future Season 1 episodes, is for the giant, hulking android named Rook. Steiner gives us an almost mindless, relentless brass figure, accompanied by aggressive strikes on the timpani. We are now nine scores into Season 1, and though there are only four scores left to talk about, they are from four different composers. In our final episode about Season 1 of Star Trek, we will listen to the wildly different music of these four composers, as they cover not only our four remaining episodes, but also a large handful of library cues. From there, we will sample just how our magical music editors use this material to track a whopping 16 remaining episodes, using their wit, their technical skill, their dramatic instinct, and musical artistry to construct orchestral scores from the ground up with Star Trek's limited available music. Thank you. <laughs> 